Hello. I would like to thank you for taking time out of your day to go through this study with us about the birth of Christ. Today we are going to look at a familiar account, the very important event that was foretold by the prophets and recorded by the biblical writers. Christmas is a time where people who don't have a Christian faith are more open than probably any other time during the year to the gospel and the story of Jesus. And we as the church would be amiss if we did not take this time, or what is left of the Christmas season, and tell them about the greatest gift the world has ever been given, the sacrifice of Jesus, so they can have eternal life. Today's study will dig a bit deeper than maybe we have in the past, and then we'll look at the Christmas as it is today, to see where its roots are, and how we can spread the gospel during this time this most important season to those of us of the Christian faith. But this study will also aim to arm you with answers about where many of the traditions regarding Christmas have come from and see how we can use them to reach the lost during this time. Let's begin with a prayer. Father, we ask that you would open your word to our hearts, to our minds, that you would show us what we've been missing, show us what you would like us to do, that you would move us forward to proclaim the gospel during this and every season. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So let's begin with a question. What is Christmas to you? In other words, what about the Christmas story speaks to you the most? To me, it's kenosis. And that is the fact that Jesus left heaven, giving up power and knowledge to become a man. You see, for us, it's going from earth to heaven. It's kind of like going from the far north of the U.S. to the Caribbean. When we sleep or die, we go to a greater place. It's not much of a sacrifice. Christ is doing the flip side. He is going from perfection, all-knowing, all-power, and he's giving some of that up to come and be like us in this place. To me, that's the most amazing part of this entire thing. How did the people know Jesus was the Christ child? Well, the answer is prophecy. They knew what the Bible said, what it declared and proclaimed about the coming Messiah. Just as we should know it today to see the signs of his appearing. Remember, his appearing and his return are two different things. But how did they know it? Well, Two of the more common ones, Micah 5.2, which gave his location. It says, But you, Bethlehem, Epaphratha, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to rule in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. This is special. 
because there were two Bethlehems. And the ones that's announced here in Micah 5.2 is actually the smaller one and the one where Jesus was born. Another prophecy is in Isaiah. In Isaiah 11.1, 1, we see the bloodline that he had to come from. It says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now we know he had to come from David's lineage, and Jesse was the father of David. Now there are other prophecies, of course, but these are the main ones that we, we look to. Now, in order to go through this, we have to begin with the end in mind. We have to know why did Jesus come? Why did he come to earth? Well, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Jesus came to ensure that we had a path to eternal life with him, if we wanted. Jesus came to give us the ability to choose that path. Jesus came with the intent to be the ultimate or perfect sacrifice. And we celebrate Christmas as the biggest holiday of the year. And it is extremely important. It's recorded in detail and foretold by the prophets. But is in itself a precursor to Good Friday. Good Friday is the reason for Christmas. He came to sacrifice himself for us. He came so that we could know who God was. He came so that we would have a better understanding of who the Father is. Because in seeing Jesus, we saw the Father. But Good Friday is also needed so that we can get to the ultimate redemption, and that is Resurrection Sunday. Now, a few years ago, my wife and I made a conscious effort to put more emphasis on Resurrection Sunday than on Christmas. In fact, we do that in a few ways. Resurrection Sunday has a larger budget in our home than Christmas. We speak about Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, what is essentially Silent Saturday, and then also Resurrection Sunday far more often. Now, one of the proudest moments I have as a father is one of my twins came to me and he said, I know what Jesus did on Friday. I know what he did on Sunday. What did he do on Saturday? And again, I call it Silent Saturday because we don't, most people don't know. And he took two days. I gave him guidance on several verses and chapters. And he, and later his twin brother, jumped in there. They broke it down and they figured it out. But during the Christmas season, we read the Christmas story and look at the prophecies that surround it. Or at least, that's what we should be doing. And Jesus, again, with the end in mind, came to be a sacrifice. So the question is, what would you sacrifice for someone? You might say, well, that depends on who they are. How about a loved one? Would it change if it was a friend? Does your answer change if it's a stranger? Or what about an enemy? You see, 
Jesus died for all of them. He died for his loved ones. He died for his friends. No one was a stranger to him, but he died for those of us who had never met him in person. And even those who killed him, he died for them. Look at the early church. Saul was persecuting them. He will later become Paul and write three-fourths of the New Testament and become the greatest evangelist the world has ever seen second to Jesus himself. If your answer was, I would give my life, then my question is, is it just this life? Moses was willing to give up his salvation for the nation of Israel. I can't say that I'm willing to do that. That was love. So now getting into the Christmas study, how do you picture Jesus? In your mind's eye, when you think about him, how do you picture Jesus? Many of us picture him like this, the ruler of the cosmos, if you will. Others, like this. And even like this. But the true question is, what does the Bible say Jesus looked like? And for that, we go back to Isaiah, and we're going to 53.2, which says, He had no form or comeliness. Form is stateliness, and comeliness is splendor. Isaiah continues, And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. This is saying that he is not handsome or attractive to women, but he's also not ugly. He's not threatening if you're a male. He is someone who no one would be intimidated by, which makes sense when we see how he was treated. You would pass him on the streets and never even remember him, except for the fact that he is the most remembered person in history. But just as David was selected because of his heart and not his looks, Jesus is remembered because of his words and actions, not his looks. The journey that was taken prior to his birth, in your mind's eye, how do you picture Joseph and Mary going to and while they are in Bethlehem? Many of us have this picture. Everyone is warm and happy, calm. Animals and people are gathered together in this nice, clean, warm stable. How about entering? Joseph and Mary took their donkey and went down to Jerusalem, right? We all have this mental picture of how it happened. Now I'm going to mix reality with a little bit of humor here because I think it fits. But keeping in mind that Mary was a 14 to 16-year-old girl near the end of her pregnancy, she's told by Joseph, probably a much older man, that she has to take an approximately 80-mile, which is going to take seven to nine-day journey on both donkey and foot, through the woods, over hills, etc., just so they can be counted. Today, it would take us about an hour and 45 minutes by car. 
And then Joseph probably threw in there, oh, by the way, when we get there, there's probably not going to be room at my family's house. Family I haven't either seen in forever or ever. Then when they do arrive, they can't find a place to stay. There's no room at his house or his family's house. And so he decides they're going to stay in a barn. Not a barn dominium like Better Homes and Gardens that's been retrofitted to be nicer than most people's homes, but in actuality, this is a cave with animals. And Mary, this is where we will have our baby. Keeping an eye on Mary's face, again, humor intermixed, this is how I see it kind of going when I think the journey. She's probably not happy, because teenagers, you know, they're known for being understanding, and pregnant women aren't moody at all. But while reading our Bibles, we need to remember that everyone in there, except for Jesus, are people just like us, with faults just like us. And we sometimes feel offended when people would make people in the Bible like us. When people would put sin or error in them. We shouldn't be offended. That's what the Bible says they are like. Looking at Matthew Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. This is when Joseph decides, this isn't what I signed up for. And I'm going to pull the plug on this marriage deal. But he's willing not to make a scene. And this this is important because you had to be divorced when you were engaged back then in order to break off the marriage. And had Mary been found out to be pregnant and he made it public, Mary would have been killed. And so we drop down to Matthew 1, 20 through 25, and we see that it continues. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord, through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Now we read verse 23 and 24 with some preconditions in our mind. We see that the angel commanded Mary not to be killed and Joseph to take her as a wife. But Joseph Joseph was never told to keep Mary as his wife. 
He was just told, don't be afraid to make her your wife. You see, there's a difference there. The only command that was given was that you shall name him Jesus. Even after the angel's vision, Joseph was still within his rights not to marry Mary. This speaks to the character of Joseph. We have to remember to read what it says in the Bible, and not according to how we see it going. The Bible must be your guiding principle. It can't be Sunday school or how you see things going. Keeping that in mind, we have to look at the Magi. And we're going to ask, who were the Magi? Well, let's break it down. What do we know about the Magi? Well, we know they brought gifts. Those gifts were, of course, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We know they came from the east, and we know they were astrologers. We also know from the biblical accounts that they arrived late. Anywhere from several months to probably about two years later. And for that, we go to Matthew 2, 9 through 11. When they, the Magi, heard the king, that's Herod, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. See, young child, the word there, is one who is below the age of puberty. But it's not the word for infant. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There's another clue there. If you see, I highlighted house. They're not in a barn. They're not in a cave. So by then, the census was over, or at least something had opened up. And again, they use the word young child. In fact, this is the same Greek word that Jesus uses in Matthew 19, 13 through 14. Then the little children were brought to him, that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. In our mind's eye, we know that these aren't infants that were brought to him. We know that these were little children. And that's the exact same word that's being used for young child when the Magi visit. Going back to who are the Magi? Well, they were disciples of Daniel. To understand that, we have to go back to Daniel 2. Daniel was put in charge of everyone who falls into this category in Babylon long before Jesus' birth. And that's because Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And God revealed to Daniel what the dream was and the interpretation of the dream. And after that, Nebuchadnezzar put Daniel over all of the wise men in Babylon. The wise men were made up of the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothslayers, or soothsayers, 
And that's where we get the word magi. And if we add a C there, we get magic. So the magicians. So they would have learned from Daniel and had that passed down to them. Also, they were from the east, the area that was Babylon. It says they were coming from Shinar, former Babylon, that'd be Iraq, Persia area, but they were coming from the east. We also know that they studied the stars. They would have, as astrologers, known what to look for. Daniel would have known Numbers 24, 17, which says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. In fact, when Herod asked his people, his people, where the Messiah would be born, they quoted to him Micah 5, 9. So they knew it. Herod would, all, would then go on to order the death of all the male children under two years of age, as cited in Matthew 2.16. That gives us another idea, because it says that that was, age was chosen based on the time of the Magi. And the Magi did not return to Herod because of what they were told in a dream. Keep in mind, these are diviners trained to interpret dreams, which is exactly what Daniel did to get put in charge of all of them. Little side note, God warns Joseph to flee at night. In your biblical times, this is not a normal movement time. It's a very dangerous time, especially for a man, his young wife, and newborn baby. Muggers or robbers, all of them are hiding out on the roadways at this time. So he flees to Egypt. Jesus was called back to Israel from Egypt, just as the nation of Israel was called out of Egypt. And Jesus went at a time of danger, because Herod was going to kill him. And Israel went to Egypt in a time of danger to escape famine. Going back to the Magi, how many Magi were there? We don't know. There were probably many. In fact, an entire caravan is likely. Because three dudes on a camel, or three dudes on camels, ain't crossing that large of a desert on their own. It's going to take some logistics and support. What do the gifts they brought represent? We see gold as his ministry. It's a symbol of his deity and glory and speaks of the shining perfection of his divine person, and ministry. We have frankincense. That is his message. You see, the gift of frankincense is said to have been acknowledgement of Jesus' priesthood, setting him apart from a typical king, because frankincense was used in the temple rituals, burned ceremonial, or ceremonially by the priests, and it was not native to that region of the East, however. So obtaining frankincense for them in the East was very costly, and the gift was precious both in meaning and in value. And then, of course, myrrh, 
represented his death. And given this is how we get that there were three magi. In fact, Matthew gives no number as to how many wise men there were. He gives no names, and he gives no position, whether they were royalty or other. In 225 AD, Tertullian called them kings, and from the three gifts, the deduction was made that they were three in number. Shortly before 600 AD, the Armenian infancy gospel named them Melchon, later changed to Melcher, Melthazar, and Gaspar. That's where we get the three. But focusing on our world as it is today in 2023, I want to pose a question to you. If you look at this picture, many of you will see either two faces or a cup, a chalice. But here's my question. There's an account where a family is sitting in a room and four masked men come through the door and they take one of the family members and they tell the rest of the family, we're going to take him into the other room and we're going to cut his heart out. And they do. And the family did nothing. They didn't stop it. They didn't even try to stop it. It just, they let it happen. And in today's world, with the Israeli-Hamas war going on and the tragedy of October 7th that took place, many of us take our mind to that place. But we are missing some facts. The setting is a hospital. The four men are surgeons, and the man they take is a patient who is having a heart transplant. That level of a change of perspective that change in information makes all the difference. And so the question is, what could a change of perspective do for us today about trying to see Christmas not necessarily as a gift, but an opportunity as a Christian here? In Galatians 2.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. If I'm dead and I live by faith, why do I care so much about how I'm viewed in the world? How about Colossians 2, 6 through 8? As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Well, here's what we got to see from that. Let's reread that with some commentary. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, that means basing everything on and going off of him in everything we do. Continuing, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware. This is huge. It's a call to pay attention to what's coming next. 
lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. What that means is reason without biblical standing, also known as lies, according to the tradition of men. A deep look into our most basic traditions will start to make you wonder, and I'll leave it at that for now. According to the basic principles of the world, our desires, which is the flesh, worry, fear, all of that, and not according to Christ. Let's look at Galatians 5.17. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. That means we're not going to be perfect. That means so long as we are living in this body, on this world, we're going to fall short. He doesn't expect us to be perfect, but he does expect us to do our best and to try and not willfully sin against him. Let's look at one of the letters to the churches he writes in Revelation, and that's the Church of Laodicea in Revelation 3, 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning. Now that word right there, the beginning, that means the commencement of something. Also ruler, foundation or source. So this is setting up what comes next. So the ruler or foundation or source of the creation of God. We know that to be Jesus. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. This isn't normal vomit. This is projectile vomit in the Greek is basically what that says. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. See, all impurities are burned off in a fire. They're either poured off or scraped off from the surface. Continues that you may be rich. So my, buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. And white garments. These white garments spoke of purity. All the stains being removed. Uncolored by any tainting color or dye. And these white robes were in contrast to the white robes that were given out as people moved up in the pagan religion of this city. He continues, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness, and this is a call back to the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him, and he with me. Two things here. To be asked into the home of a Jewish person for a meal or dinner is the most personal request they can make. On top of that, Jesus isn't inside this church. 
They are a church claiming it, but they're not following his doctrine. Continues. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we take that and we look. We can get the gift of mistakes. Mistakes, we can learn from mistakes. Mistakes allow us to lose pride and gain humility. We have the freedom of forgiveness. To be forgiven is to learn to forgive. And to forgive others is to forgive ourselves. It's been noted that we are usually more sensitive to the sins of others that we see in ourselves. And the opportunity of faith. Faith is the opportunity of eternity which stands before us all. Right now we can invest in the world or in heaven, but it is impossible to invest in both. So presents. Christmas time is known and poignanted mainly by presence in today's world. But what gift would you like to give Jesus this Christmas? That's the question. You see, it's been said that it's better to give than to receive. But if you could give a gift you actually wanted to give, and that somebody actually wanted at the same time, and this same gift was perfect to both sides, to both the giver and the receiver. And in the exchange, it brought the same level of joy to both sides. How amazing would that be? Now, think about what gift you would give to Jesus this Christmas that could do that. And on the other side, what gift does Jesus want from you this Christmas? I believe the answer is Jesus wants from you what you actually want to give. But most people won't. Either because they're scared to admit they have it, or they're unwilling to part with it. Or, another way to say it is, they're unwilling to give it to him. You see, Jesus wants our sin. The worst parts of us. That's what he wants. We want to give it away so bad. We can't stand it. We can't live with it. We don't want it. He wants that so that we can receive the gift he has to give, which is eternal life. So Jesus wants our pride, lust, idolatry, pain, insecurity, selfishness, substance abuse, hatred, hurt, whatever it is that is wrecking you. He wants that. And in return, his gift is love, acceptance, forgiveness, freedom, and eternal life. We see this in John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The first part of that is pretty much known by people who don't even go to church. But very few people have any idea what the word begotten means. The only begotten Son. Begotten 
in the Greek means unique, in the sense of being the only one, or of the same kind or class. Jesus is the same as the Father. No one else is like that. Begotten is saying that Jesus and the Father are the same. They are one. Jesus is the Son of the Father, and they are one. Now, in verse 17, a word that could bring us some panic, especially in the hands of the enemy, but we shouldn't fear it, is that word might, that through him the world might be saved. This isn't saying Jesus can't or is unwilling to save us. But what it's saying is God gave us free will, and that's a choice that's open to all of us. And it's because of that choice that we might be saved. Or another way of saying it is, we might choose to be saved. You see, Jesus is able to save everyone, but he won't force it on anyone. So you either have to choose heaven or hell. And it's contingent on us accepting the gift of Jesus as to getting to heaven. What is your focus this Christmas? What are you focused on? What is your family focused on? What are your kids focused on? Is it cookies in the shapes of stars and trees? Is it a Christmas tree? Is it lights? Is it the presents that they're going to get? Or is it Jesus? We're going to break this down. You see, all things related to Christmas are good to celebrate if we do it in the right way. This is the time, again, when people are most open to hearing the Christmas, they say, story. And that's a misnomer because a story is something that didn't actually happen, or we give it the feeling that it's something that didn't actually happen. It's a Christmas event. Christmas history. And the world is most open to us sharing the gospel at this time. Even if we don't agree with how it's celebrated in the world, we can use it to reach them. We need to bring the focus to Jesus and his birth through all of the symbols and traditions. We should be most afraid of letting Christmas go by and not talking about Jesus with the world. That would be sinful. Not us celebrating it because these symbols might be quote-unquote pagan. No. Not only is it okay to celebrate it, we need to use it to reach the lost, because there may not be a better time to reach the unsaved. I ask that every Christmas season, families sit down and read Matthew one eighteen through 2.18, and or Luke 2 to your family, in your home, and make that the focus of your Christmas. This truth of what we celebrate and the reason for the season, where it says that the word of the prophet may be fulfilled, go there and read what the prophet said to the family so that they know it. See, in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, it says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. 
You see, the substance of all of the traditions, all of the rituals, all of it, the festivals, they are all a shadow of what they were waiting on, which is the Messiah, which is Jesus. How about 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23? For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law. Not being without law toward God, but under law towards Christ. That I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might, by all means, save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. That's important. So Christmas today, let's look at the truth behind Christmas of today. And we got to start with this. When was Jesus born? If you ask little children, it's going to be December 25th. However, we know that it's most likely sometime between April and September of 3 to 4 AD. If it was in the winter, shepherds wouldn't be in the field, the weak, the sick, the elderly, all of them would have not been able to make those journeys. Many people would have died. And Rome would have lost out on taxes. So for even a simply financial reason, they wouldn't do it when a lot of people would have died. And here's another shocker. Where in the Bible are we told to celebrate Christmas? We need to keep in mind that that's in First Traditions 1-1. And if you're trying to look that up right now, it's not in your Bible. You see... It's nowhere in your Bible that we are commanded to celebrate Jesus. It's his birth. However, it is an important holiday. It is important. And we should bring it into memory and remembrance and talk about it and celebrate it. But we need to be knowledgeable that Jesus only commands us to do one thing in remembrance of him. And that is communion. That's in one of them is in Luke twenty two nineteen through twenty, and it says, "He took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.' Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Truth is, God isn't impressed with our celebration of Christmas, just as he wasn't impressed with the Jews' keeping of the festivals, the sacrifices, because many times the focus of these celebrations is not on him. Now, when we are going through anything we do and the focus, the intent is on Jesus, obviously we're not going to be sinning when we're doing that, and he is going to be glorified in that. But again, most of us are not taking seriously the meaning 
of Christmas. We have allowed the world to creep in like we have in many of our doctrinal things in the church. And so he's not impressed with that. We are not to be conformed to the world. Remember, be ye not conformed to the world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Part of that is learning the information of what's behind it. He is not impressed if we have a Christmas tree. Because our kids say, isn't that where the presents come from? Isn't this our homes? They nearly bow down before it. Or the fat man. Isn't that who we worship? Because isn't that who presents come from? Who we take them to ask for things? Elves? Aren't they the ones with reverence? Because aren't they the ones who are responsible for making the gifts? No. You see, we need to try this again because this is what we deserve. Coal, pile of dirt. Honestly, every one of us deserves to spend eternity in the lake of fire. That, that's all we actually deserve. That's all we've actually earned. Anything short of that is mercy and grace. So let's try this again. A tree because Jesus is the tree of life. And we put a star on it because Jesus is the light of the world. And we give presents because Jesus is the gift of salvation. If that's the focus of our Christmas season, then I believe he's happy. God is happy with our celebration. But again, if your focus is a fat man, elves, and trees, and presents, I don't think he's impressed. And this thing called Hanukkah, what is that? We know the Jews celebrate it, but we as Christians have no idea what that is. And in fact, it's called the Festival of Lights, or Light. It comes from the first century revolt of the Maccabee family against Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who was the king, to take back the temple. And if you want to read about it, it's in the Septuagint in 1st Maccabee. And what happened? They found one jar of oil left after their revolt, enough for one day. And miraculously, it lasted eight. Enough time for them to make the needed oil to burn the lamps in the temple. And that is where Hanukkah comes from. And you may still be asking, well, why do we care about Hanukkah? We're Christian. Well, Jesus went to Jerusalem during the Feast of Hanukkah. And the logistics of it should get our attention. This would have been a six-week journey, recorded in John 10, 22. And if Jesus was willing to take a six-week journey out of his ministry for this, we should probably take notice and know something about it. So that's the history of Hanukkah in a very quick way. Now, getting to the traditions of today. Again, all of these young children believe that Jesus was born on December 25th. So where in the world does December 25th come from? And the answer is, it comes from Constantine, the Roman Empire. 
He said, December 25th, in 312 AD, to Christianize the pagans. You see, it was the pagan holiday known as Saturnalia. So now we have another question. Most of us don't know what the pagan holiday of Saturnalia is. And not that we want to worship anything pagan, but we need to know what it is, because that will bring into focus some, some things. And we need to understand where these things come from so that we're at least aware. You see, the pagan holiday of Saturnalia started in 497 BC, when the Roman temple of Saturn was dedicated in Rome. Saturn was the Roman god of fertility and agriculture. He was also, I'm sorry, the holiday was represented in 1 Kings as the worship of Baal and Ashtaroth during the time of King Ahab and the prophet Elijah. The female side of this would be Asherah, Ashtaroth, Ishtar, Venus, or Aphrodite, etc. Those are the female sides. But when you read in your Old Testament the Ashtaroth pole, this is the worship of this. This is what we're talking about, part of it. And Saturnalia itself started as a one-day event on December 17th. But over time, it grew until it went from the 17th until December 25th. And what was it? Well, it was a time where lawlessness was celebrated. And we read in the Bible that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. We see that in 2 Thessalonians 2.7. You see, the Roman courts were closed at this time. No one could be punished for damaging property or injuring people. It began when Roman authorities chose an enemy of the Roman people. This could be male or female, but what they did to this person was they indulged them, forcefully at times, with food and other physical pleasures, remembering who Saturn is, during this week, but then they brutally murdered them on December 25th as a symbol of killing the evil inside of Rome. That's Saturnalia. Now, Lucian, the Greek historian, wrote in the 2nd century about this holiday. He spoke of human sacrifice, widespread drunkenness, rape, and other sexual license. Some other things that were common about this celebration. They would go house to house singing while naked. Modern-day caroling. Granted, we wear clothes. They would also eat human-shaped biscuits. Think gingerbread men. Everyone, including slaves, looked forward to the holiday all year round because slaves could say whatever they wanted during this celebration to their masters with no punishment. In fact, they would wear hats that represented them as free men so no one would know they were a slave during the celebration of Saturnalia. And each house would elect a king of chaos or misrule to preside over the holiday. That was Saturnalia. Now, modern day, we have the greeting of the fat man of ho, ho, ho. Well, 
in Saturnalia, people would yell low, which later became low, 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 which is where we get the saying of Santa, ho, ho, ho. Now, if Bruce Springsteen was pagan, or worshipped in Saturnalia, the song Saturnalia in the USA may come to mind. But what, what did we have as history here in the U.S.? And it might be shocking to some. We see that in 1687 in Boston, they observed the first nativity, but stated, this isn't Jesus' birthday. So even back then, they knew that it wasn't Jesus' birthday. In fact, the Puritans refused to celebrate Christmas, and from 1659 to 1681, it was actually outlawed in Massachusetts because of its pagan links to Saturnalia. Now, what about the Jews? How did they view Saturnalia in their world? How do they remember it? In 1466, Pope Paul II forced Jews to eat a lot of food and then run around the streets naked. And he reportedly laughed heartily while this happened. In the 18th and 19th centuries, rabbis were made to walk the streets of Rome in clownish outfits while people threw things at them. In 1836, Jews petitioned Pope Gregory XVI, begging him to stop the holiday of Saturnalia, which he denied. And that year, 12 Jews were murdered and many Jewish women raped. How about today? Jewish people do remember these atrocities and tend to more tie December 25th with Saturnalia than the birth of Christ, which they also do know it celebrates. Looking at some of our other traditions, where's our Christmas tree come from? Well, it's actually related to the Ashtaroth pole people who worship trees, and the Germans actually originally hung them upside down because the male tree, I'm sorry, the Christmas tree represents the male penis, and the wreath is the female side. The church tried to recruit pagans by allowing people to decorate their tree. Now, we're going to read Jeremiah 10, 1 through 4, and it is not about Christmas trees, but about building an idol. But I think it fits, because what have we made Christmas trees today? It says, Hear the word of the Lord, which he speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven. For the Gentiles are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen, with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold and fasten it with the nails and hammers so that they do not topple. Continuing to Colossians 2.16 So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moons, ceremonies, or Sabbaths. Bringing back to remembrance 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, that Paul said he did all things for all men. And so we need to remember 
to make Christmas about Jesus. Understand where these symbols, these traditions came from. Because many of us believe they came from Christian places, and they did not. And in a world where people are confronting us, people don't just accept the Bible as truth. We're in a season where we have to be able to stand on it and also explain. And very few of us can explain. And so knowing where they came from so that we can explain it, I believe is very important in these days. And so I have a challenge. And that challenge is to make Christmas about Christ again. And not only that, a simple question from the Bible, how many of each clean animal, birds and unclean animals, did Noah take on the ark? Sunday school tells us they went two by two. But in Genesis 7, 2 through 3, it tells us of the unclean, they took two. Of the clean and of birds, they took seven of each. So in 2024, learn the biblical truth, not the Sunday school truth. See what Jesus has hidden in his word for you and let it come to life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we had. We thank you for your your blessing and your word. We pray that we would be wise in the ways of your word, that we look through it, that it would be our foundation, that it would be everything we went to, that we would celebrate this Christmas season in a way that would honor you, that we would point everything to you, that we would win souls for you, and that we would celebrate it correctly and be able to teach all things to all people in all places. We thank you. We ask you to watch over our nation and over your people, Israel. Be with those who are persecuted, those who are suffering in this season. May they remember that you were born in such a dark time. It was not not any better of a time than we have now. If it was up to us, we would be born in a palace. You were born in a manger, in a cave. If it was up to us, we would have made our mother's womb the most luscious, lavish place that we could have imagined. Seeing that you were born where you were and that you lived in the way you did, yes, you created it. Yes, you created the hands that held you but you did not make it any better than any of us had because you wanted to be just like us, to know what it was like to be us and experience it like us so that you could show us the way to walk and that we would know that we have an advocate in heaven that knows just like us how we live, how we are tempted, and that actually made it through. We thank you and we ask you to bless Bless our lives as we go through this season. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for sticking around and have a great day.